0: Let's Go State, the official podcast of Penn State Athletics. Now, from Happy Valley, here's your host, Brian
1: Tripp. I hope everyone's staying safe and healthy. It's great to be with you once again here on another episode of Let's Go State, the official podcast of Penn State Athletics. Our guest today is Penn State Associate AD for Business Relations, Tom McGrath. And we're going to get into the interview here in just a moment. But first, I want to provide a little background on Tom and really set the table for our conversation. Tom joined Penn State in 2014. He had a long and storied career elsewhere before joining the Penn State family, the Vice President of International Business Development with Jet Set Sports, one of the world's foremost providers of hospitality and ticket packages for the Olympic Games. He's worked in intercollegiate athletics with the University of Colorado, worked in professional sports as the vice president administration for the Boston Celtics back in the early and mid 90s. And most relevant and most notable to what we're going to be talking about today, the associate executive director for USA Basketball, coordinating programs for men's basketball for the Olympic Pan Am Games and the world university games from 1978 to 1992 and with the last two episodes of the last dance airing this past sunday we thought tom would be a great guest to bring in not only to share his perspective of what the significance of that dream team was and what michael jordan's impact on the game of basketball has been but to share his firsthand accounts of these stories as well and to add a little bit more of his inside knowledge to these moments, And again, it proves that there's such a valuable resource and we have such great talent across the board, not only the coaches, the players, but the administration, the support staff here at Penn State, just a variety of people who really are at the top of their field. So I hope you enjoy this one. I know I did. As we welcome in now, Tom McGrath, the Associate AD for Business Relations at Penn State. Tom, really appreciate the time. How are you doing? Wonderful. Great to be with you today, Brian. Tom, you, like millions of other Americans, have spent the last five Sunday evenings watching The Last Dance, the story of the 97-98 Chicago Bulls, and the history going into that dynasty and leading up to that final season. You are someone, as I described your bio a couple of minutes ago, that has firsthand knowledge of these events. These are stories you've lived through, athletes you've gotten to know over the years. When you've seen this documentary and you've spent time on Sunday night Sitting down to watch. What has it been like for you to relive some of these moments and these experiences and hear these told once again to a new audience?
0: It's been phenomenal. I mean, just to experience it and again and to see it and hear people's um, impressions and, and what it meant to them, both the players that played the game and, and also the people that watched it. Uh, you know, and, and sometimes you're in the heat of the moment, you don't, you don't realize that something is impactful until you go back and look at it again. But it's been really a lot of fun.
1: Let's start with Michael Jordan, as he is, to me, when you work in athletics and around athletes all the time, they start to become just other human beings. But Michael Jordan is always that one or one of those figures that to me is on a pedestal. He he seems almost like a superhuman. For you, when did you first meet Michael and what was your relationship like with him?
0: Well, in 1981, um, the U.S. Olympic Committee ran a multi-sport event in the non-Olympic years, and basketball used it as a kind of a developmental tool as the first entry. For you know, our Olympic teams were collegiate players and coaches at the time, and yes, you know, so we had 48 uh, uh, what we called uh, rising college freshmen and rising college sophomores that um, we brought into these Olympic festivals. And this one was in Syracuse. And Michael was just coming out of high school before he went to North Carolina for his first year. He was one of those 48 young men that was divided up between North, South, East, and West. And we played a round-robin tournament and um, gold medal game and uh, brought these young men together and kind of got them into the the Olympic mode. and, And not just in what we did for uh, the Olympic program. But I think it did a lot for college basketball because these top kids that were coming in, highly recruited, had a chance to spend um, a couple of weeks together, you know, two weeks together in the summer uh, before uh, going back to college. And some of the top coaches, John Thompson was coaching in the East in that, uh, in that competition. And uh, so it was, so that's how I got to know Michael for the first time. He was one of, you know, 48 of the top, uh, players and, and young players in the country, so you know it wasn't like all of a sudden he was he was uh, extraordinary. Uh, but he showed a few glimpses of uh, of what we've known to uh, associate with Michael.
1: In your roles and in your capacity, a lot changes between the early 1980s and then 1992 when assembling the Dream team and all the ideas and the concept of putting the dream team together and what enabled that to occur. What was that process like and how did we get from point A to point B? And can you just describe your background and involvement in that?
0: Well, you know, the first uh, the first meeting I attended in this role, I was 23 years old. The final form was in Salt Lake City. And um, I, that was when Magic and Larry were playing for the national championship. And I walked into our committee room and... You know, here I am, 23 years old, and I—I I tease. I—I I use the analogy. I said this is before people could spell Coach K, let alone Shashevsky. <laughs> um, he was uh, an assistant coach at Army. Was coach under or or played under Bob Knight, and and then was an assistant in Indiana. So they had a real coach uh, close relationship. And and Coach Knight was going to uh, be coaching the Pan American t- uh, Games team that summer. I walk into this room. And there's Bob Knight, uh, Dean Smith, uh, Dave Gavitt, um, uh, let's see, Pete Newell, Wayne Embry, uh, did I say Dean Smith? I mean, just legends. And I said to myself, what little I know about the game of basketball is not why I am in this room. (laughs) I developed a really good relationship with those coaches because I never interfered with who was the better player or, you know, what type of offense they need to be running. And, you know, my role was the administrative part to make sure that, um, you know, the players they wanted, we ended up getting, you know, to a trials or to a training camp. And, and that was a fun part of it. Um, and really developed a great relationship with those coaches. And, you know, it was really, the, I think it's the the key success to, to my career. Um, knowing what your role is and, and then just making things happen and and doing what needs to be done. But that was a a huge part of it. Um, And, you know, the fun part of it, too, was a lot of the guys on the 92 team I had known while they were collegiate players. Mm And they either played on the Olympic team in 84 or on a national sports festival, Olympic festival program. So, um, you know, it was kind of old hat. They were just people that, you know, I kind of, grew up with and came across so uh it wasn't like it was Michael Jordan the superstar was Michael Jordan you know the kid that came to the first uh Olympic festival
1: and you were sharing with me beforehand a story about Michael Jordan and meeting a -A make-a-wish kid and that's how you got to know Michael personally and what he was about and what he stood for
0: yeah you know in 1984 we we had uh, before going to Los Angeles we played um Exhibition games against NBA players, and they were really tremendously helpful in helping us prepare. And I had on my list that there was a make a, a wish uh, child that wanted to meet Michael Jordan. And so the make a wish people get in contact with us, and you know, I talked to Michael, and, and he goes, Yeah, I'll do it. And you know, I said, It'll Be it the, around the game in Greensboro, and he goes, Okay. And I saw him in uh, the the day before, the morning before and I said, you know, we all set for this and everything ready to go and I could sense he was a little um, not himself, but he was like, yeah, yeah, I, I got it and he, he wasn't, and I, I thought there might have been something bothering him and I said, hey Michael, what, what's up? What's he? and he goes, Tom, it is tough, because he, this is one of the first, it wasn't the first one he had done, but he said it is difficult to meet with the Make-A-Wish child and realize that you know, if they've got a terminal illness or their prognosis isn't good, and they want to meet me, um, that's a that's tough. Uh, he didn't say it, but you know, not the the burden. But um, it it really put in in my mind. It brought out the fact is that hey, this was something on my list of things to do today and had to get done and make them. You make the arrangements, and you saw how it impacted Michael to. To sit for fifteen or twenty minutes with this this young person, and you know the the how he had to react to that. You know he's only you know twenty one, twenty two years old, and, and trying to do that. That's that's a lot to put on a young man, and and it kind of put things in perspective. Uh, is and it, it gave me a greater appreciation for it's just not a task. It's a it, it's impactful on both sides.
1: And I think this can apply to so many things. You mentioned yourself and your career, knowing your role when you were in that room with all those basketball coaching legends as we've come to know them today. It's funny because you can relate this back to the Last Dance documentary as well. Michael Jordan with Phil Jackson. The big thing that made those teams successful that they emphasized in the storytelling was that each player had a role and you had to play a team role. It wasn't Michael going out and scoring 45 points a night as he maybe was under Doug Collins, it was the role players and everyone understanding that role that made them successful. So I think in all in all aspects of life, that's something that whether it applies to business, whether it applies to you as an individual and you're fit within an organization, or it applies to a professional athlete and they're fit with the team, that's something that really can apply to a lot of people.
0: Yeah, and and that is when when we were selecting teams mm-hmm. for to represent the United States is that Sometimes we got in a box uh, because we had to realize we weren't selecting an all-star team. We were selecting a team. And a lot of people could question the makeup of the team, but you know, I think that's what our coaches did so well, is they, they looked at all of the individual players and tried to pick out um, what would make the most successful team. And in different times, if you're picking an all-star team that's going to go to NBA All-Star Weekend, it, it you know you show up on Friday and you're out of there by Sunday night or Monday morning, um, and you got responsibilities and things to do. There's not really a lot of interaction other than what's on the floor. Um, but if you're putting together a team that's going to go behind the iron curtain back in, in the 1980s uh, with very different um, lifestyles and creature comforts and, and what have you is that you better make sure you're getting a team that is uh, that people can get along with one another and and they can they can mesh as a team and and really uh, know what their role is and it's all about the team and I think one of the greatest things was you know that's what the '92 team was all about that uh, went to Barcelona to win the gold medal. First time that we had pros in the Olympics is that it was carefully selected to, you know, be representative of a group that was going to spend six weeks together mm-hmm. um, in the same hotel and um, eating at the, the same you know uh, room for for six weeks.
1: What did that group? You obviously were a part of the throngs of people. You've experienced it firsthand. What did that group mean to basketball, USA basketball, and basketball? with what they stood for, and what those moments were like in Barcelona, not only on the court and playing exceptional basketball, but just the icons that so many individuals on that team were.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I it was it was very special while we were in the, the mix of it, but um, we didn't know what the impact was going to be. Um, and a lot of reluctance participants in it, um, and especially in the United States. I mean, the NBA wasn't beating the drum, but they wanted their guys to go to the Olympic Games. Um, and USA Basketball, it was an organization that was primarily, you know, the, the college uh, coaches and groups, and, and they didn't want to lose you know, the Olympics as their uh, experience. The United States was was a country that voted against open competition. And I kind of looked at it from the standpoint is that it shouldn't be USA basketball's decision. It shouldn't be the IOC. It shouldn't be the NBA. It should be the player. And the first step in that is that they ought to be eligible or given the opportunity to say, no, I don't want to play in the Olympics. Um, And I think that was, that's the way, you know, I approached even even though our organization was, was opposed to it, um, but I, I think that the, the fun part of it was that players that stepped up and go, yeah, like Magic was the first one, and he goes, "I want to play for my country. I want to win. I want to win a gold medal." Mm-hmm. And it kind of made it okay for some of the other superstars to say, "Oh, okay, you know, I'll, I'll think about it." But I mean, really, we didn't. We honestly said, "Okay, they're eligible, but we don't know if we're going to get any of them to play, but we're going to try." And and. You know, everybody that we asked
1: said yes. Is that something you saw when you were with them when you were there, the respect they had for their country, the respect they had for the Olympic Games and what they stood for? And were they the type of people that would go out and watch other teams compete? Were they wanted to be a part of these Olympic moments that we see so many athletes a part of over the year, even though these are your NBA players? They're not just shutting themselves in a plush hotel and and there for the experience, play and then go home.
0: Well, um, you know, I think that the the 92 team really was a a vehicle for change. And it was a difficult vehicle because um, the, the people that thought, oh, the Olympics are amateur. Well, not really, uh, especially in basketball. I mean, the rest of the world, they had, uh, you know, 28, 30, 32-year-old men that were playing against our collegians. And they worked to... They were especially behind the Iron Curtain is that they were in the Army or whatever, and they were considered amateur, although they were very well off. Uh, And we got criticized uh, about bringing pros into the Olympic uh, family, and um, we got a lot of criticism because we weren't staying in the Olympic Village. And, you know, we weren't, um, you know, our, our competition went over the entire, you know, 16 or 14 days of the Olympic Games. And, you know, with a total of eight games and, you know, we got criticized for it. And and why aren't they staying in the village? They're not, you know, which nobody paid attention to, you know, what a track athlete would do the night before his competition and staying in a hotel or whatever. But the, the best part of it was we left Monte Carlo where we were training. And we flew into Barcelona and we had to go to the Olympic Village to get a credit. And it was a nightmare it was people all over the the there was no crowd control people were coming from all over the village to to get a glimpse of the dream team and we brought the guys in and they ended up going to get accredited and for whatever reason the people that were doing it were still um, very much uh, eagerly anticipating the team's arrival they put the doctor's photo on the trainer's uh, credential and vice versa and they had no idea how to fix it, so it took about forty minutes, but in the process, once the players got their credentials, they ran back to the bus, and the media were all around them, and they were people were running and bumping into the media. They were dropping these you know cameras that were probably worth tens of thousands of dollars and falling on the ground, and uh, they rush onto the bus, and then kind of things subsided a little bit, and we're waiting for them to fix the credentials. So I'm sitting there on the bus and and Larry Bird is at the back of the bus and he yells up at me and says, Tom, see those five girls over there? Bring them on the bus. And without looking, I turned around and I said, Larry, I expect that from Charles, but not from you. And he goes, no, there's five girls over there and they're sitting over there. And I look over and these five very petite young ladies are sitting on the curb, probably about 25 yards away from where the bus is, and they are, um, their heads are held in their hands, and they're just sitting there, you know, looking down at the ground, and I go over, and they have no idea who I am or where I came from, and tap them on the shoulder, and I said, you young ladies don't mind, there's some people on this bus that would really like to meet you, and they looked at me, and it was five of the members of the U.S. gymnastics team, and they came onto the bus and our team could not have been more engaged with them, Uh, asked them for their autographs, got their pictures taken with some traded pins, And they had probably 20, 25 minutes on the bus with the guys. And it was, it was a really special moment. And we had trading cards that, you know, with the team and we gave them, you know, good supply of the trading cards and the packages and, you know, it was just a terrific night. I got back to the hotel and I told my wife, Julie, about it. And and she says, oh my God, you know, she, one of the gymnasts was on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And he said, what is it you're looking forward to in Barcelona? And she's like, I hope, I hope I get to meet the dream team. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, it was, it was a special piece. And three or four nights later, uh, we went to the final night of the women's gymnastic team competition. And... Uh, we were watching them move around to their final rotation. And I think Scottie Pippen was there and Carl Malone or John Stockton. And we went up and when we stood up to like everybody else in the arena to applaud them. One of the gymnasts hit the other in front of her as they're marching and points up and sees the our team or the couple of guys on the team there reaches into their little, this really tiny bag that they carry with them for their grips or chalk or rosin or whatever, and they pull up, They each pull out a couple of packs of Dream Team trading cards and wave them to the guys. And I'm like, you know, those are the special moments. And I think that all, Charles would be out all, all the time on the list at the Olympic Village. Larry went out and watched baseball. Uh, Michael went out and played a lot of golf. Uh, But yeah, they, they, they tried to really take in the Olympic experience and it was something that, uh, was very special to them, um, to, to represent their country and and be a part of this team that was probably the greatest team ever put together.
1: Well, I'm going to wrap it up on this one and get a lot of flack. If I did not ask uh, this question, we saw the, we saw this portrayed in the documentary and the story of Michael and Team USA, the Reebok logos, obviously on the Olympic warmups for the medal ceremony and trying to just come up with some way to obscure that logo in, in a classy manner while still being loyal to Nike, obviously, which is what Michael Jordan had tied himself to and still ties himself to all these years later.
0: Well, a little bit of the, the background on it is that, um, it, like I said, it was a time of change and how... USA Basketball conducted its business and was supported. How the U.S. Olympic Committee conducted its business and was supported were real. This was this was really challenging to them. I mean, prior to uh, up through 1988, Converse was the, the big provider. Every player on the Olympic team wore Converse. Well, mm-hmm. we had to figure out once pros were eligible, is that they weren't going to be wearing Converse shoes. Um, They're probably going to wear in their own. Uh, And this was before we even thought about which player was going to be on the team. And even before Reebok was identified as the award suit, you know, I tried to work through with the USOC saying, this could be a problem. How are we going to deal with it? What do we do? And, you know, I think the USOC was still kind of in the mode is that, you know, this is our team and they'll do whatever we tell them to do. And I said, well, you know, it probably isn't going to be the, be the, the way it'll work. And, uh, we should probably be more more attentive to it. And while we were preparing for the Olympics uh, a couple of weeks before, in training in Portland, some representatives from the U.S. Olympic Committee came out and wanted to make sure that the team was going to sign their um, release and what they were going to be wearing and the award suits. And it was still a real bone of contention for our guys. And it wasn't, you know, brought upon them by Nike or what have you. But um, and I was there with the 12 guys on the team because it was the 4th of July and the coaches all went out to play golf or whatever. But yeah, (laughs) Tom, you can handle this one. And um, the only thing I put in perspective, because it still hadn't been resolved, that after the players left, I said, you know, you may not want them to play in the Olympics and you may want it amateur, but these guys are eligible. And the law of the United States says if you're eligible by your international federation, then you are eligible to represent your country, and nobody can take that away. And I said, it doesn't make it right, but the 12 guys that were just sitting around the table are a business entity as well, and their collective revenue streams exceed the USOC quadrennial budget, the four-year budget for the Olympic Games. And I said, you don't have to agree with what they're saying, but you have to understand where they're coming from. Is that they are, and, and it's not just in basketball; it's it's at everything. So I think that that's one of the things that was was part of the evolution. Mm-hmm. I think too that um, as far as the the Reebok piece of it, um, you know, we had worked through kind of pinning back the the uh, lapels on on the award suit. And the other thing, and Michael was still, his mind was going in a lot of different directions. And I remember it was before the gold medal game and we ate in the hotel. We had our pregame meal down in the lower level of the ambassador hotel in Barcelona. And we all finished eating and Michael comes up to me and he goes, Tom, I need 12 flags. And I'm like, okay, 12 like little flags on a stick. And, And he goes, no, I need 12 big flags. And I said, Michael, I'm getting on the bus with you in three minutes. Where am I going to get 12 flags? And he just looked at me and he smiled and he goes, take care of it. Thank you. And and I, so I had my assistant, um, Joanne Scott, who who now runs the NCAA basketball championship for division one. Um, she, I said to her, Joanne, get over to the arena early, go up into the stands, find out, um, see if you can get anybody who will give you flags from, from people up in the in, up in the spectator area she goes up and she's, you know, unidentified and just asking people for their flag or whatever. And she comes back and she gets three. And I have no idea what Michael was planning or whatever. But he comes over to me as as, uh, he's warming up and he looks at me and says, you know, like, okay, what'd you get? Where are they? And I held up three fingers and he looked at me and he just had that big smile and he says perfect. And that was it. <laughs> and, um, you know, we went to the, after winning the gold medal, we went to the locker room and, you know, I said, Oh, here they are. And, and then in addition to pitting them back, his, his plan was that he was going to wear the, uh, wear the flag. So.
1: Tom, I think we could have a, a conversation for an hour, 90 minutes, two hours, three <laughs> hours, but I do want to bring it back here quickly before we, wrap things up to Penn state and the one common thread that I hear in a lot of this is whether it's Michael and his brand, the U S Olympic brand, uh, team USA brand is something that's really important in sports. And Penn state obviously has a brand that's very reputable, not only within college athletics, but within the entire sports industry. So what was it in 2014 about Penn state and the brand that it has and its power that attracted you to come to, to the university?
0: The way they do things, I mean, it was it was um, winning, but following the rules. Uh, a fan base that in the middle of central Pennsylvania is that you know a hundred thousand plus people could come to a football game, or wrestling championships, or a broad-based program. Um, you know, that it was, it's now at 31 sports. And, you know, here it was adding a, a, a major sport in, in ice hockey. Mm-hmm. Um, people weren't doing that at the time. Uh, the uniqueness of of a great academic institution, the Big Ten Conference, uh, broad-based participation, and a fan base that got behind their team no matter what. Uh, that was a special part of
1: it. What additional things have you learned about Penn State as now a member of the athletic department for six years?
0: You know we have great student athletes, uh, great coaches, but the thing that kind of is I think is the secret sauce is our fan base. Is that you know, it doesn't matter whether it is, no matter the competition, the sport is that they they show up and they care and they're passionate about it. Um, a soccer program, um, women's field hockey, ice hockey, and what they've done at Pagula is a program that uh, you know has just started. Uh, still in the single digits of, of years. So uh, all of those things, I think the one thing that I I kind of had a sense on, but really didn't understand a big piece of it until I got here, was how much our our fans for our student athletes and for the program and for the university.
1: Tom, this was a thrill for me. And I think everyone listening, it was a thrill for them as well. So thanks so much for the time. Stay well and be well to you and everyone close to you.
0: Thank you so much. And, and, uh, safe, safe and healthy times for everyone out there listening.
1: And just to put a bow on the podcast and really appreciate Tom's time, but I remember as someone growing up and maybe this is why I got into broadcasting that I would sit at home and put on the Alan Parsons project and, announced the Chicago Bulls, 96, 97, 98 starting lineups, and from North Carolina, the whole bit. And it's just, it's incredible to see how much, not only Michael Jordan and the Dream Team, as we talk so much about in the podcast, but how much that team meant to not only the basketball world, but what they represented In the culture, that they became icons, they became symbols for much more than just the NBA and basketball. And it really permeated a lot of our lives in many ways. And at that time, I'm an elementary schooler, so I'm really young and impressionable. And that's the first basketball memories I have watching the NBA finals in 96, 97, 98, those games against the Utah Jazz that the Bulls played, and the big shot over. Russell, where Jordan, and he said he didn't push him out of the way. And the hand just kind of guided him out of the way. Him hitting that game-winning shot. So it was really awesome to hear Tom's perspective, and I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did here today. We'll talk to you next time on Let's Go State, the official podcast of Penn State Athletics. Thank you for tuning in. If you like what you heard here today, make sure you hit that subscribe button. I'm Brian Tripp. So long. This has been Let's Go State, the official podcast of Penn State Athletics.
0: Let's Go State, the official podcast of Penn State Athletics.